46 in Luke 24, Jesus said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Then he refers to the promise of the Father again. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So here's the deal. Jesus appears. He shows himself alive after this is after his death, obviously. And, and so he's resurrected. He shows himself alive. He's speaking to them about the things of the kingdom. But then he also says... I want you to go and I want you to preach the good news, the gospel. Preach that I am alive. And it specifically says repentance and remission of sins to be preached in his name, which you don't hear that very often anymore. Uh, you you kind of hear the remission part, but not the repentance part, right? And should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then he says the same thing which Acts 1.8 says, that don't go yet, wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Tarry in Jerusalem, which means wait. The Greek actually means sit down. Sit down in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So what happens if you go over to continue reading in Acts chapter 1, it says that they're meeting together. They're in one accord in one place. They're praying. And it says there's 120 of them. They're continuing steadfastly in prayer. And then on the day of Pentecost, which would have been 10 days after this 40-day period, Jesus sends the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit comes. And Acts chapter 2, let's just read that. And I'm going to read it from the... Um, I'm going to read it from two translations... The first one is the New Living, and then um, the second one is the Passion. Acts 2, 1 through 4. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit... And began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now, as we continue this series, one of the things we'll be looking at is what the Bible actually teaches about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and particularly uh, what is called tongues. Okay, the, the term is glossolalia, and the idea here is uh, there's actually different ways we see or different applications for tongues. This one, if you read the rest of the chapter, you're going to see very clearly they were proclaiming the mighty works of God in known languages, okay? Known languages because on the day of Pentecost, it was like a big festival. There were three main festivals a year that the Jews were required to come to Jerusalem and celebrate. So the diaspora, the Jews who had been scattered throughout the world would all converge in Jerusalem, or most of them, many of them, and they would celebrate this festival. So on the day of Pentecost, here they are, all these different Jews, and there's even some proselytes, and they're in Jerusalem, and this experience happens. So these guys, they have, you know, Cretans, there's Arabs, there's people from all different places, and it says that they heard them, the apostles, the 120, speaking proclaiming the mighty works of God in their dialect or in their language. Okay, so it's something they understood. But the interesting thing is, are not all these men Galileans? In other words, these guys don't know this language or these languages. How are they doing this? And, you know, we don't know exactly what was going on. There's 120 people. Does that mean each one was speaking one different language or dialect? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But... Who knows? Maybe, maybe they were uh, speaking different languages. I remember, I've seen it several times where um, people who didn't know a language were just kind of praying, and, and it was like a language they didn't know, and someone 
around them knew the language. And they were like, oh my gosh, they, they're speaking fluent Portuguese or whatever. I know a, a story of that. And we know a woman from uh, southern Illinois who actually went with her husband to Israel and she got baptized in the Jordan River. And when she came out, the Holy Spirit came upon her and she was speaking in fluent Arabic. And there were all these uh, Palestinians who spoke Arabic. Some of them, not all of them are Muslims. You know, some of them are Christians too. But they were standing there and what they said was she was proclaiming in like just pure Arabic, Messiah is coming, his name is Jesus, repent, repent, Messiah is coming, his name is Jesus, in Arabic. Now, come on, man, These, this, this lady, she had trouble speaking English, you know what I'm saying? Southern Illinois, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it's Ewan, so I'm just, I knew there's a couple people from Illinois in here, I had to get you guys. But um, anyway, the point I'm trying to make is she didn't learn that language, I mean, and it was something supernatural. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. That's what happened. They were proclaiming the mighty works of God in languages they had not known. Okay. Let's read Acts 2, 1 through 4 in the Passion Translation. On the day of Pentecost, on that, I'm sorry, on the day Pentecost was being fulfilled, all the disciples were gathered in one place. Suddenly they heard the sound of a violent blast of wind rushing down into the house from out of the heavenly realms. Wow, that's interesting. The roar of the wind was so overpowering, it was all anyone could bear. Then all at once, a pillar of fire appeared before their eyes. It separated into tongues of fire that engulfed each one of them. They were all filled and equipped with the Holy Spirit and were inspired to speak in tongues, empowered by the Spirit to speak in languages they had never learned. So that kind of gives you a different perspective. So when it talks about this sound, okay, and the sound of a rushing mighty wind, or the one translation talks about it's a fierce, violent wind. I think that's what the NIV says. So it's not like a, a cool ocean breeze. We're talking like an F5, F4 tornado. That's the noise we're talking about. This is a fierce, violent wind. This is... Um, this is something that no one could mistake. I mean, it was, it was fierce. So this was what we call the coming of the Holy Spirit, what we identify as the coming of the Holy Spirit to baptize the followers of Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, Jesus had prophesied this is going to happen. Don't go out and preach yet. Well, Terry, sit down in Jerusalem and wait. Until you are endued. The word endued means to be clothed, to be cloaked or to be clothed with power from on high. So you need this power to be able to go and fulfill the mission that I've called you to do. You can't do it in your own strength. And I said this, I believe, two, two Wednesday nights ago. I said, Christianity is not difficult. It's impossible without the Holy Spirit. It, there's what Jesus has called us to do, how he's called us to live. Like, be ye holy for your, as, as, what? Be ye holy as, for he is holy as he is holy. Okay, as he is holy. Okay, that's easy, right? Okay, be holy. Like, how holy? Like, the holiness of God. Okay? And, you know, and, and then he talks about loving your enemies and, and all those type of things. It's not easy for us as human beings. And then, you know, cast out demons, raise the dead, heal the sick. Um, I don't think we can do that in our own strength. So we need the power of the Holy Spirit. The dunamis power of the Holy Spirit is the Greek. You shall receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses. So we're talking about tonight, our subject is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And the premise is that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the gateway to spirit-filled living, okay? It's not the end all. It's not like, well, I have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. I have attained this pinnacle of ultimate spirituality. Not at all. There are many people who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit and have brought great reproach to the name of Jesus Christ. 
So it's not a guarantee that once you receive this, you'll be this holy person. You'll never struggle. You'll never have any temptations or you'll never fall or anything. That's not at all what it's saying. He's saying we need to draw or walk in this power. Once you receive it, now you need to avail yourself. You, you need to appropriate this power. It's very, very important. So it's not any type of you know, consummate um, experience of, of spirituality. Now, the truth here tonight that we want to emphasize is that every believer can and should enter into the spirit-filled life by being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So two things we're going to look at tonight. Why is the ba- what is the baptism in the Holy Spirit? And secondly, why is the baptism in the Holy Spirit so important? One thing I'd like to define is the word baptism or baptize. In the New Testament language, the Koine Greek, it's the word baptizo. Baptizo means to immerse. Immerse, okay? It's actually, remember when Jesus said the person who takes the bread and, you know, he dips it? In the cup, he's the one who's going to betray me. Okay, that word where he speaks about taking bread and dipping it in the cup is the word baptizo. So think about a piece of bread. And if you take a piece of bread and you dip it in grape juice, what happens to that bread? Right? Okay. So, yeah, and it soaks up, it's saturated, it's, it's replete with that liquid, Right? And so the idea, the word baptism, baptizo, means to immerse, to saturate. So it's like you, God takes you and he dips you, not into a river, not into water like John did, but into the Holy Spirit. So you're not only um, covered, but you're actually saturated with the Holy Spirit. That's the idea. In fact... The word baptizo, if you go back into classical Greek, you can find that the word baptizo is actually used in um, the art of marinating. So the idea is baptizo can also be translated to marinate. Yeah, to pickle, to marinate. Absolutely. So it was used in pickling recipes, in marinating. I mean, I've seen people, it looks like they're baptized in pickle juice. You know what I mean? But we're not talking about that. We're talking about being baptized in the Holy Spirit, which is joy. Because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. So the, the idea is it, it's a word that speaks more about, you know, definitely not sprinkling. <laughs> and it's very clear what it represents. So just as we're to be baptized in water, immersed in water, so... There is a sense in which we're to be immersed, we're to be marinated, we're to be saturated, we're to be dipped in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's the wording Jesus used to describe this. So just before he returned to heaven, he commanded his disciples to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. So in this lesson, we'll discuss this powerful spiritual experience. We'll learn that it is the gateway to the Spirit-filled life. And as I said, we'll look at what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, scripturally speaking, and why is it so important. All right, we'll look at five things that this author um, actually identifies that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt from scripture that is um, biblical about the Holy Spirit. First of all, being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. You're immersed in the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's, it's in the Bible. This isn't just some concoction or, or doctrine that somebody made up based on, well, you know, we had this experience happen, and uh, so let's, let's develop a doctrine to try to define what experience we had. Um, there have been a lot of people who have, throughout the years, come up with, well, hey, we were baptized in the Holy Spirit, But after that, you know, we had this really super uh, spiritual experience called the baptism in the fire. And then they actually call it a separate experience in being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So cults, basically, have done this. And when the Azusa Street outpouring, which happened in 1906, when that happened, which it 
lit up the world so that now we have um, close to a bill, close to I think it's seven eight hundred million uh, people who claim to be Pentecostal or charismatic in the world. The defining doctrine of Pentecost. Uh, now there's different different um, types of Pentecostals. There's different types of charismatics and full gospel and whatever term you want to use. These are all man-made terms, right? Jesus didn't use this. But the bottom line is, you know, it's about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because charismata is the word from about the gifts, which means these are grace gifts. They're not things we do, like, because I'm so spiritual, I have these gifts. The word charismata uh, means charis is the word grace in Greek. So it's nothing to do with because I'm so spiritual, I pray or whatever, or I have the right doctrine, then I am so anointed and so powerful. It's grace. It's grace. So what do we do? The Bible says in Second Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow. We can grow in grace. It says in Acts 4.33 that the early church increased in, the, in power, but also great grace was upon them all. Mega grace is what the Greek says. Mega grace was upon them all. Grace. Isn't that awesome? So grace isn't just forgiveness. Grace is the power of God. The Holy Spirit's called the spirit of grace in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. He's the spirit of grace. So I need his grace. I need his grace. Not only do I need his mercy, forgiveness, but I need his grace to empower me to live an overcoming life so I can be the person he's created me to be. I'm not just a sinner who's been forgiven. I'm a saint who's been empowered. Okay? Now, what I want you to understand is mercy covers the, you know, mercy triumphs over judgment. It's because of mercy we're forgiven. But a lot of Christians stop there. It says in Hebrews 4, verse 12, let us boldly approach his throne of grace so that we may, what? Obtain mercy and grace. That we may obtain mercy and grace to help us. Okay, so we need both mercy and grace. Mercy is forgiveness. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. And grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. So... We need both mercy and grace. I need grace, Romans 6, 14. Sin shall have no dominion over you. You're not under law. You're under grace. So grace enables me to live so that sin doesn't have dominion over me. Titus 2, 11 and 12. The grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us that we should deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Okay, so grace is a teacher. Grace is instructs us to deny. The New International says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts. Grace is more than forgiveness. And God says, you're not just a sinner forgiven, but you're a saint that has been empowered by my grace. The church in Corinth was probably the most messed up, jacked up church in the whole New Testament. They, they had sexual immorality, People taking, believers taking one another to, to court. They were getting drunk. They were, they were um, division. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow, you know, the real spiritual sex followed Jesus. And there are a lot of problems in that church. They were carnal. And he said, you're like babes, you're carnal. But the interesting thing, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth in the first, first epistle, chapter 1, verse 1, he calls them saints. He doesn't say, you bunch of babies, you wicked sinners. First thing, he identifies them as the saints. And why would he do that? Later on, he says they are babes. They're carnal. They're causing division. They need to grow up. He tells them all that. I mean, Paul reams them out. But the point is, he's speaking to them in their identity. Okay? You know what I mean? Like It's kind of like act your age, not your shoe size. Like, you are a saint. Why are you acting like this? That's not who you are. That's not your identity. Your identity is you are a saint. Okay? So saint comes from the Greek word 
hagios. All right? You'll see if you look this up, you'll see that the word sanctify, saint, and holy. Those three words, holiness, are all variations of that same Greek word, hagios. Okay. Now, if you look it up in a Strong's Concordance or something, you'll say it says to be set apart for God. That's true. It is. But the etymology, I'm just going to get a little geeky for a bit. Is that okay? The etymology comes from two primary words. The first word is gi. Gi is today we, you know, that's a nice ringtone like that. (laughs) So gi, guess what that word means in Greek? Ha gi os. Ha gi os. Gi in Greek means dirt or soil. Earth, dirt or soil. Ha, or literally ah, in Greek is an antecedent. And an antecedent negates. So when you say ha or ah gi os, Agi means not of the earth, not of the dirt, not of the soil. So a spiritual person is a person who's not of the earth, not of the dirt, not of the soil. That's what it means to be sanctified or set apart. Okay? So isn't that awesome? Set your mind on things above. Don't let the things of earth, Colossians 3. So he says, be heavenly minded. Don't be earthly minded. So that's what it means. Your citizenship is in heaven, Paul says in Philippians 3. So we're, we're seated in heavenly places in Christ, right? Did You heard Jiva, uh, Pastor Jiva said on Sunday, we are citizens of heaven with a visa for earth. He said, we're not, he said, we're not citizens of earth with a visa for heaven. There's a difference. And, and that's what it's all about. So when we're talking about being holy, it's the Holy Spirit, Right? In whatever language, we use the term holy to identify him, not just the spirit, because there are many spirits. There are unclean spirits. Jesus spoke about them. But then there's Holy Spirit, and he is God. He's the third person, but he's holy. So the Bible talks about this um, experience. It's in the Bible, right? Be baptized with the Holy, Matthew 3, with the Holy Spirit, Matthew 3.11. Uh, John it says, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but there's one coming after me who's mightier than I. You know, I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandals, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Matthew 3.11, Acts 1.4, 11, Jesus promised power to those who would receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's a commandment. All believers are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we already looked at uh, Luke twenty four forty nine. Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift that my father promised. Okay, so you wait there, and then you get filled. Paul commanded believers to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18, don't be drunk in wine, which leads to dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So are you a believer in Christ? Okay. Then you have been commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now... In Acts 5.18, personally, I just want to qualify something. When he talks about don't be drunk with wine, which leads to dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's in present tense, which means be continually, repeatedly filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's not just referring to this one-time event. Okay, It's referring to a lifestyle being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because in Acts chapter 2... We read these disciples were baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then later on, you know, they met together, they prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit again, it talks about. So there's these fillings. There's one baptism, sometimes we say it this way, one baptism, but many in fillings. All right. Now, there, the second point here is it is a separate experience, or we could say a subsequent experience to baptism. I'm sorry, to salvation. When a person is born again, they're born of the Spirit. Absolutely. Romans 8, 9 says, if you, if you don't have this Holy Spirit, you don't belong to God. But if you belong to God, if you're born again, you're born from above. And anothea is the Greek word. It means from another realm or from a spiritual or heavenly realm is what it means. When he says born again, 
It's not again. It's not even a very inaccurate translation. It means born from above, anathema, or born from a heavenly or spiritual realm is what it means. So you're born of the spirit is what Jesus says also in John 3, right? So you have the Holy Spirit when you're born again. But this is the point, okay? Now, this is where, this is where people, Christians um, disagree. Some Christians disagree, okay? Like evangelicals with Pentecostals. Often this is the area of divide, okay? Oh, and I'm born again. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm baptized into the Spirit. Ephesians 4 says that. I'm baptized into one body and baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ. Yes! When we're born again, we're born of the spirit. And when we're born again, we become part of the body of Christ. Absolutely. But the difference is, you'll notice that these guys who had been, Jesus sees them in John 20. Now, he hadn't yet, um, the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet on the day of Pentecost. But in John 20, he sees them. So during this 40-day period where he's appearing to them and he's speaking to them about the kingdom, at one time he sees them. And he breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he talks to them about forgiving sins. <laughs> Remember that part? Whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven, and so on. That part, and that's where the Catholic Church gets their doctrine. I get it. That, that's not our subject tonight. But anyway, Jesus was saying, I've given you power to go and preach. What? The gospel of repentance and remission, right? So... You can help people experience forgiveness by preaching them the gospel. Anyway, that's not my subject. So what you have uh, going on is they breathe you, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there was a book written by um, John MacArthur several years ago called Charismatic Chaos. And the whole thing was just anti-Pentecostal, anti And one of the things, I read that book, and one of the things he says is, when Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit, that didn't happen. That was a prophetic gesture of something that would happen in the future, namely on the day of Pentecost. But they never really received the Holy Spirit at that time when he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, the burden or the onus is upon someone to prove otherwise. Because the scripture would seemingly be very clear. Why would you say receive something? Well, I'm not really meaning receive it. That's not for now. Okay. Now, the point is, when Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit, what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he always pointed to the future. He didn't say, receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit right now. He always talked about a future event. And when he said in Acts chapter 1 that you will receive the Holy Spirit, he had already breathed on them. This was after he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here? What's going on is when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, they did. It happened. They, because he said in John 7, the Holy Spirit is with you, he comes upon you, but he's not in you. And the reason he's not in you is I have not yet been glorified. I have not yet ascended to my Father, is what he said. So what happens is Jesus, and this is the argument John MacArthur gives, Jesus hadn't ascended yet to the Father, so how could he say, receive the Holy Spirit? But is that factual, that Jesus hadn't ascended to the Father? No, he had ascended to the Father. How do we know that? Because in the festival of first fruits, which was, so on, when Jesus died, which was on Passover day, right, unleavened bread, and then what happened on Passover, and then there's what we call first fruits. And what was first fruits? First fruits was on the Sabbath, and first fruits, by the way, that's the day when they entered into the promised land. Remember when they entered, crossed the river Jordan, they entered into the promised land, and there is now no more manna, but there's reaping the harvest, literally, of the land of Israel. That was first fruits, okay? 
But first fruits was first celebrated in the wilderness during Passover. So what happens is Jesus, according to the principle of first fruits, and there are many prophetic scriptures, what happens is he says, before you take any of the harvest, what you do is you take the first fruits and you put it in a sheaf, you bind it together, and then you wave it to God. The principle, I mean, the scriptures talk about first fruit repeatedly, which means God gets it before we partake of it, right? That's the principle. So what, what he's saying is that Jesus, the Bible says, was the first fruits offering. He was the firstborn of those from the dead. And what does it mean he was the first fruits offering? It means this, that when Jesus died and he rose again, he actually went and presented himself to his father as a first fruits offering. How do we know? Because there's a point where the day of his resurrection, he's at the tomb and Mary Magdalene sees him, supposing he's a gardener, and she walks up and wants to touch him. And Jesus is like, back off. Don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to my father. That's what he said, right? But it's a few days later. I think it's eight days later. I'm a little bit rusty on this. I haven't taught it in a long time. But about eight days later, here he is. He appears to the disciples. Thomas is in the room. And I could just see his, the holes and, you know, then touch him, put my finger in his, in his, his holes. And I would believe, right? And so Jesus stretches out his hands and says, touch me, Thomas. So why would he say, touch me, if he hadn't yet ascended to the Father? Right? Mary, don't touch me. Thomas, touch me. He's not playing games. He's not playing favorites. So what's going on? He ascended to the Father. So he ascended to the Father. That means the Holy Spirit is given. Okay. So later on, he says this. You come into, you gather, you wait until you receive power from on high. Now, they're born of the Spirit, okay? But what happens? When he breathed on them in John 20, it was after he had ascended to the Father. That's what I believe. Scripturally, we can prove that. And then what happens is they had received the Holy Spirit, but they had not yet been received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They've been born of the Spirit, but not baptized of the Holy Spirit. Born of the Spirit has to do with your with your identity, with your birthright. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, uh, to those who believe in him, he gave them the right or the authority to become sons of God. So when you're born of the Spirit, it's, I'm born again. I'm a son of God, right? Now, what ends up happening is, later on, he says to sons of God, children of God, he says to them, I want to give you this power so you can be witnesses unto me. And this power is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So on the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after Jesus' death, Holy Spirit shows up and he fills them. And then Peter, uh, Dr. Burpee brought this out, you know, Peter all of a sudden is standing before he was sitting. He was timid, he was afraid, and now he stands up on the day of Pentecost and he's preaching boldly. So it gives us boldness, you know. It gives us power and authority. So the point of it is, it has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with power to live an overcoming life, power to, uh, and we'll look at some specific things, to, to be a witness, really, is what Jesus said. So it's a separate experience. It's subsequent to this. Okay, the revival in Samaria. The Bible says, Philip went to Samaria, preached Christ to them. They believed, they received his message. It says, with great joy. And it says, they were baptized in water. And yet, it wasn't until Peter and John came down from Jerusalem days later and laid hands on them that they received the Holy Spirit. They're baptized. They believed. That's what the verbiage says. Saul of Tarsus, right? Or later we call him Paul. Was converted on the road to Damascus. Later was filled with the Holy Spirit in Damascus when Ananias prayed for him. We know he is truly converted when he encountered Jesus on the road. He obeyed Jesus, fully submitted to Christ's will. Ananias appears to him before he lays hands on him and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And it actually says he calls him Brother Saul. So this isn't like, hey, bro, kind of thing. This is like identification. You're in the family of God, right? 
So some days later, he lays hands on him, he receives the Holy Spirit. Now somebody says, well, he didn't speak in tongues. How do you know that? Later on, 1 Corinthians 14, he says, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. Okay? All right. Now, the Ephesian disciples, Acts 19, these 12 Ephesian disciples were members, likely members of the emerging church in Ephesus. Um, They had believed, remember that when Priscilla and Aquila, no, I'm sorry, when Apollos went there, Apollos was preaching only the baptism of John. And so he didn't understand. Apollos didn't get, he didn't understand everything. So Priscilla and Aquila show up. And by the way, just for the record, it says that Aquila and his wife Priscilla both taught him. So ladies, there's a place saying that a woman taught a man in the scripture. Okay. With her husband, yes, I know, but still she did. Okay, so what happens is they teach him about the way of the Lord. They teach him greater revelation. Yeah, he believes in Jesus. Yes, he gets it. But he's only telling him about being baptized with John's baptism. Baptism of repentance and water, right? Okay, so what happens is Paul shows up and then he asks them a question. Like, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? That's the question he asks. He wouldn't have said since you believed if they weren't believers, right? He calls them, and so it says, no, we haven't even heard who the Holy Spirit is. So then what does he do? It says, Paul baptizes them in water, Acts 19, 4 and 5. And then after that, he lays hands on them, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They speak in tongues and prophesy. Not just speak in tongues, but they prophesied as well. Okay? All right. So, it's a normative experience. What we mean by a normative experience is that it's for everybody. Okay? When you look at, there are many, many... Places in the scripture, we have some uh, listed here. You know, Joel 2, 28 and 29, Acts 2, 4. They all, all, it talks about all, all. This promise is you, your children, your children's children, as many as the Lord your God will call, it says in Acts 2. So it's not like God saying, this is just for some people. He's saying this is for everybody. Okay. And what did you say, uh Dr. Burpee last week about pursuing, like basically it's not enough to say, hey, I'm good with it. Like if you believe that, it's okay. I don't have a problem. I'm open to it. But you said that's not enough. We need to be, how'd you say it? Tell us. We need to passionately pursue and then continually be filled. You know, praying Jude 20, building ourselves up in the Holy Ghost every day to overcome temptation, to be sweet to our spouse, to be good to our neighbor, pray, baby, pray. <laughs> and to uh, to be a servant, you know, so that we're not shooting from the flesh and we're not being soulish. We have to be spiritual in the community of believers and in the community of unbelievers. In traffic. In traffic, yeah. So... It's true, and what happens is we get into the flesh, right? I mean, and we choose. We can choose. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you can do miracles, signs, and wonders, and then choose to be in the flesh, okay? I mean, you can get, oh, my gosh, you get stressed out, and you get anxious, and you don't walk in the Spirit, and you do something stupid, and you, get, you lose your cool or whatever, okay? That's a choice still, so we have to choose to... Put to death by the Spirit, the Bible says. You put to death the deeds of the flesh, but you do it by the Spirit, is what it says in Romans 8. can't do it by your own strength or willpower. You do it by the Spirit. So you walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5 says, and what happens? You don't fulfill the works of the flesh by walking in the Spirit, is what it says. All right. So um, it's a powerful experience. Jesus said you're going to receive power. Very powerful. Change Peter's life. Um, it's never the same. Okay, um, it's a necessary experience. We all need it. We all need to be filled with the Holy Spirit because it's our source of spiritual strength and the gateway into the spirit-filled life. I like that analogy. It's a gateway into the spirit-filled life. It's not the consummation. It's a gateway. Okay, now I have access into the spirit realm. I have access into a place because. 
now I have the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And I have the person of the Holy Spirit living in me. I'm filled with him. He's anointed me. He's empowered me. And, uh, and so on. Okay, so why is it so important? <clears throat> why is this emphasis on the baptism of the Holy Spirit so important? Why do we need to be receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? And why do we need to continually be seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And I love that scripture that Dr. Burpee referred to in Jude. It says, build yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. So you pray in the Spirit, and it says you build yourself up in the most holy faith. In 1 Corinthians 14, I believe it's verse 2, it's verse 2 or 3. Uh, Paul says, he who speaks in an unknown tongue, and he's talking about praying in tongues, because if you read 1 Corinthians 14, he said, you know, I will pray in the Spirit, I will sing in the Spirit, I will pray in the, I will sing and pray with the understanding, and then I will sing and pray with my spirit. So he says, when you pray in the Spirit or an unknown tongue, then he says, you build yourself up, you edify yourself. So it's like spiritual weightlifting. When you use that gift, we'll talk more about it later, but you use that, so it helps you. Okay, why do we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Number one, power to witness. You will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be witnesses. That word power, dunamis, means divine ability. Okay? It can also be translated mighty works, and you'll see that in the New Testament, that same word dunamis is translated mighty works when it's referring to miracles. So it's not natural stuff. It's supernatural, right? Like think about 2 Peter 1, 4, I believe it is. It says we are partakers of the divine nature. When we're born of the spirit, we're partakers of the divine nature, right? It means who's the, what's the divine nature? Right? Anybody know? Like, what's the divine nature? <laughs> Who's the divine nature? God, right? So God, we're partakers of God's nature. And First John 3, 9 says, his seed remains in us. Okay? So what that means is God's in us. Man, can you imagine? Like, God lives in you. When you're born again, God is in you. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So what does that mean? Because God lives in us. His nature is in us. We have a super nature. It's not just a human nature. We have a super nature, a divine nature. And because we have a super nature, it's now natural for us to live supernaturally. Does that make sense? So we don't live from the soul. We live from the spirit which is the spirit of God, the supernature of God. And so it becomes natural for us to live supernaturally. And there are some things, like living in the flesh, um, living in sin, is actually unnatural for a Christian. It's living against our nature. Because now we have this new nature. This nature, according to Ephesians 4.24, it actually says about this. I'm, I'm going to read it to you because this isn't the gospel according to Glenn. Um, let me read to you Ephesians 4, verse 24. Paul says this. <clears throat> and that you put on the new man, which was created. Was is present, future, or past tense? Which one? Past tense, okay. That you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Wow. Wow. I'm just a sinner that's forgiven. No, the Bible says you have a new nature. Okay? The Bible says that you're a saint, a child of God. The nature of God lives in you. That you put on the new man. You have to choose to put on which was created according to God in true righteousness. So what does that mean? It means basically that you got to accept this. Right? Romans 6, reckon yourself dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ. You have to reckon. Do you guys say reckon? Do you? I reckon so. Okay. In Australia, it's very common. I mean, I say it still. So I said it to someone, to Kendra today, I think it was. I said, you reckon? She looked at me. I said, you say reckon? She goes, no. 
accent. You're from Florida. You're not Southern. You're not Southern. So, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's true. And so what happens is we have to reckon. We have to realize. We have to realize, okay? So, we, it's, it's powerful and it's necessary, but it gives us um, greater effectiveness in, in, in ministry and particularly power to witness and power in prayer. I'll tell you what, you get baptized with the Holy Spirit, your prayer life will change. It'll change. Not just because you, you, you've got the gift, you can pray in tongues. I'm not just talking about that, but it'll change. Because the Bible says this, looks into this. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, it talks about how we actually, um, the Holy Spirit helps us with, to pray. We don't know what we should pray, how we should pray, the times, but the Holy Spirit, what does the Bible say? The Holy Spirit, pray in the Spirit. When it says in Jude, pray in the Spirit, and Ephesians 6, pray in the Spirit, in English, it's an uppercase S. But in 1 Corinthians 14, when he says, I will pray with the understanding, and I will pray with the Spirit, with my Spirit, I will sing with the understanding, meaning the language I know or languages I know, and I will sing with the Spirit. The S in Spirit is lowercase. Okay, why is that? Because he's talking about your spirit allowing the Holy Spirit, but it's your spirit that activates and engages in the process with the Holy Spirit, right? Romans says the spirit bears witness to our spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit. So it's with our spirit that we engage God, right? Okay, so it'll help. And then, of course, there's the manifestation of spiritual gifts, the charismata, the grace gifts, the, the gifts of God, right? 1 Corinthians 12 7 through 10 talks about what we, you know, typically Pentecostals refer to as the charismatic gifts, tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, uh, working of miracles, the gift of faith, uh, gifts of healings is actually what the Greek says, gifts, plural, of healings, plural. Then there's discerning of spirits. There's the word of knowledge. There's the word of wisdom, the logos of wisdom, the logos of knowledge. So these are the nine that are mentioned there. Of course, you know, this is what he refers to as the, Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, the actual manifestation of the spirit. And what does that mean, the manifestation? It comes from the Greek word, which means to appear, to appear. In fact, we get our English word phantom from the Greek word. So it is, it's the idea. It's, it's an appearance. It's like an epiphany almost is the idea. And so what he's saying is this particular manifestation of the spirit happens because the gifts of the spirit are resident in the spirit, meaning in the Holy Spirit. The gifts are in the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is powerfully resident in those who've, been, who've received him and been filled with the Holy Spirit so what happens is God can manifest through us. He can manifest through us. I love that. We can actually, it's not like flame on, you know, but it's, it's like, seriously, it is in a sense, okay. All right, God, right now, this person has a problem. They need to hear from you. They need healing. They need whatever. And you can just reach kind of down into, into the reach up to the spirit, however you want to put it, or I think into the spirit because he's in us, and just say, okay, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do about this right now? What do you want to do about this? And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit gives you wisdom. He gives you instruction how to deal with situations. This is what's going on. This is what you need to happen. And so what happens is <clears throat> we begin to deal with the situation because now we're receiving the wisdom and counsel of God. I remember one time... I don't know if I told you guys this story, but it's such a good story. I'm going to repeat it. So I was preaching in Africa. We did a crusade. And uh, one night after the crusade was over, we were behind the stage. And this woman was there. That The pastors brought this woman. And she had this little child. He was about this tall. And um, <clears throat> maybe a little bit taller. But he was. it turned out he was like seven or eight years old. Something like that. I may have some of the facts wrong here, but they said to me through an interpreter, this young boy um, 
doesn't talk. And so I said, okay, did he ever talk? And they said, yes, he did, but he doesn't talk now. So would you pray for him? And so anyway, I had just been through a pastor's conference. We had just done a pastor's conference, and we'd been teaching on how to heal the sick and move in the gifts of the Spirit. And a lot of the African pastors, everything's a demon, okay? (laughs) Everything's a demon in Africa. And so somebody's got a, you know, a sore foot. It's a demon. So, and I believe in that, but everything is. Cast the demon out. So they scream and they get in the person's face and scream, come out. And so anyway, we're, we're standing there and I just said, okay, we're going to pray. Let's pray. So we pray. Father, what's going on? What's the situation with this child here? And what ends up happening is the Holy Spirit speaks to me. And I saw, it was like a picture, and this is what I saw. I saw an area. It was like an open area. It was kind of like, there was houses nearby, but this was like a courtyard. It was an area where people would congregate. And I saw a machete. And I saw blood. And I heard the word trauma. And so I said to the mother, through an interpreter, I said, I don't know what this means, but I saw a machete. And I'm hearing the word trauma. And I shared it with her. She started crying and weeping. I said, what? And she said, several years ago, my son witnessed a man being attacked with a machete. And I said, was it right around then that he stopped talking? And she said, it actually was. It was right around that time, shortly thereafter. So we started, we prayed, and we asked the Lord to heal him, to heal his emotion, his memories, to bring healing to him, according to James 1.21, that he will heal our psyche. And we prayed for him, and we just ministered the Holy Spirit. And after a few minutes, maybe 10 minutes, this kid talked right in front of everybody. This child talked. He had never spoken for many years. So, awesome, isn't it? So we need the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. 